Welcome to Faith in Capital, a show where persons and communities of Christian faith are invited to engage the system of capitalism theologically and ethically, or you might say from a faith perspective. I'm your host, Chase Tibbs. Hey everyone. Alright, so before we get started with our new series on the primary goal of capitalism and some of the material costs it levies upon our lives and our relationships, I want to real quick mention a few things up front. First, um, my partner and I just moved to Charlotte, North Carolina. So, if you're in the state or are in one of the neighboring states, I'd love to hear from you and let's connect. Um, you can email me at faithincapital at gmail.com or hit up um, the Faith and Capital Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages. If, if you'd ever want to put on some kind of event or conversation in your church community around Christianity and capitalism in class or all the other forms of hierarchies that um, it feeds upon, I'd love to think like through some of that with you as well. So yeah, hit me up and say hello. Another thing is that uh, if you're a regular listener and you have yet to contribute at Patreon, please consider doing so. Consider contributing a single dollar or two dollars a month on your end so that I can keep doing what I'm doing on my end. Our Patreon supporters help make this show available for folks who, because of capitalism, actually can't afford it. And I greatly appreciate each and every one of our patrons for making this show and its future possible. Also, five-star iTunes ratings and reviews. This helps increase our reach and helps this content find ears that have perhaps been indoctrinated into thinking that Jesus himself was a defender of capitalism, right? That exploitation is natural and there can be no other way. And that poverty and homelessness and extreme inequality drawn along lines of class, race, and gender exist because, well, people are simply bad with money and haven't taken the Dave Ramsey course their church is offering. As a Marxist whose socialist politics have emerged from my distinctly Christian convictions, I'm trying to offer an alternative message that helps working-class people in the pews see how capitalism exploits them and their loved ones, how capitalism anti-democratically and hierarchically constrains the power of the many while enabling the power of the few how capitalism concentrates collectively produced wealth into the hands of a few elites, and how capitalism is profoundly connected to all those other things we care about, from things like poverty and homelessness, to racial and gender inequality, and even why so many people all over the world are rapidly being displaced and being forced to migrate. So, any financial help you can give on your end goes to making this Marxist Christian message available for more and more and more people. Thank you so much. Finally, we have a growing list of interviewees for this fall. They'll be helping us think about capitalism in relation to faith, imperialism, property, feminism and anti-racism, different kinds of communisms, and more. So I hope you are as excited as I am to learn from voices coming from all over the world who are doing really great stuff. We're going to talk to people from the U.S., Puerto Rico, Canada, Norway. It's going to be a blast. All right, so that's enough of that. Let's dive into our new series, The First and Greatest Commandment of Capitalism. Throughout this series, I want to do two simple things. First, I want to reflect on the passages where Jesus is questioned about the first and greatest commandment and ask how a particular understanding of 
greatest commandments might help us understand the number one priority, the primary goal, the ultimate objective of capitalism. Then, once we've reflected on the notion of first and greatest commandments, as well as capitalism's primary goal, we'll take a look at some of the consequences and costs that result from the system's ultimate objective. How does capitalism's greatest commandment inform and influence our relationships at work, our relationships around rents and debts, our relationships at home and in our communities, our relationships with people living beyond the U.S. mainland, and finally, our relationships we have with the rest of the beloved creation? Under capitalism, all of our relationships are profoundly shaped, if not entirely subjected to, the system's first and greatest commandment, which means capitalism's primary goal has material consequences for us all, whether we morally agree with its number one priority or not. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's dive into today's episode. We've got two things on the agenda. Number one, what are first and greatest commandments? And what do they have to do with our ways of being and relating in the world? Number two, what is the greatest commandment of capitalism? And why aren't people able to simply opt out? The Gospel of Mark is widely accepted to be the oldest gospel we have, and leading up to its first commandment text, as it is translated in my NRSV, found in chapter 12, is something very, very important regarding the significance of Mark's greatest commandment text. Over and over again, Mark seems to suggest that there is a contradiction an antagonism between the way of being in the values of Jesus and the way of being in the values of the religious elites who, and this is important, have politically and economically sided with Rome. Mark's first commandment passage emerges out of this antagonistic relationship that apparently cannot be resolved between Jesus and the people who sit at the top of social hierarchies and economic inequalities. In chapter 11, he wrecks the lucrative businesses happening in the powerful and exploitative temple. And this radical event is supposed to symbolically reveal the religious elite's commitment not to the well-being of the people, not to the poor peasants who are constantly being displaced and threatened with poverty, but to the empire and its concerns. In chapter 12, the antagonism continues. It might be helpful to first mention verses 13 through 17, where Jesus turns his being questioned about taxes into an opportunity to reveal, yet again, that the religious elites had sided, not with the brutally exploited and oppressed masses from which they themselves were extracting wealth through tithes, but with the political and economic powers of Rome. By asking them, in verse 16, to bring him a denarius. The following four words is the punchline of the story. And they brought one. You see, the question the ancient audience would have asked is, how in the world did they even have this Roman form of currency? The answer is obvious. They got it from the hands of the Roman elites, whom they served above all else. In pulling the currency with Caesar's face on it out from their very own pockets, the ancient audience would know that the religious elite's faith and their ways of being in the world were very much in sync with the desires of the ruling elite. 
And in the preceding parable of the wicked tenants, this story again can be heard as telling us that Jesus and the religious elites are at odds with one another because of the differing gods they serve and the consequences that result from their very different kinds of faith. It is an irresolvable contradiction, and the opposing camps are destined to clash. Now, to be clear, they were all Jewish. I'm not saying that they were of different religious traditions or that that would even matter. Jesus lived and died a first century Palestinian Jew, as did the religious elites he was butting heads with. But just because you are in the same religious tradition and use the same theological language doesn't mean you embody the same faith or live out the same values or even worship the same God. In rejecting Jesus, as the parable of the wicked tenants suggests, the religious elites were rejecting the God of Jesus, whose work and desires fundamentally threatened the power and wealth that Caesar and Herod had destructively built their thrones upon. And after Mark clearly conveys this irreconcilable antagonism between the values of Jesus and the values of the oppressive and exploitative status quo, we get to verse verses 28-34, where a curious scribe asks Jesus, which commandment is the first of all? All right, let's take a step back here. We know that in Mark, the faith of Jesus is at odds with the faith of the religious elites and the faith of the empire. And by faith, I don't mean belief, but rather a way of being and relating in the world. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, we know that the Roman Empire is tied up with oppression and militarism and exploitation that together shore up extreme inequalities and unjust hierarchies and unnecessary suffering. And we know that Jesus, in pursuit of the coming eschaton, right, or the, the kingdom of God, is pitting himself against their values and their ways of being in the world, which must include the systems and structures which ensure their positions of superiority over others. And so, how Jesus responds to this question concerning the first commandment, I believe, has to be understood in the context of this irresolvable contradiction between the two opposing camps. Jesus responds with two commandments that are perhaps best understood as symbiotically related to one another, meaning that they are two interrelating parts of a greater whole. This is what he says, quote, The first is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. End quote. Now, it is widely accepted that Jesus here is summarizing the Torah, the teachings or the law of Moses. Like today, talking about loving God and neighbor would not have been considered scandalous or subversive or even novel at all. The first century audience would have been familiar with those passages in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, but understood in the context of the irreconcilable contradiction, these commandments are more than just summarizations of the Torah. The summarization of the Torah, the first and greatest commandments, according to Jesus, puts us at odds with the political systems, the economic structures, and the social orders that serve the interests of the wealthy and the powerful at the expense of everyone else, most brutally 
the least of these. You see, it could be said that Jesus, Caesar, Herod, and the religious elites all had their own set of first and greatest commandments. And when they embodied and practiced their particular first and greatest commandments, they were led to materialize different worlds and different kinds of relationships. The different gods that they all served and the different values they were all living out brought them to materialize and create different worlds, both for themselves and for all they were in relation to. You could say that the first and greatest commandments of Jesus and his opponents had very different goals and conflicting outcomes. And that's because first and greatest commandments transform our lives, our relationships, and our ways of being in the world. That's what these commandments are all about. They orient our ways of being in the world. They shape how we see ourselves and others. They influence and inform who we really are and how we relate to those around us. First and greatest commandments aren't just values that have no material consequences for the world. First and greatest commandments lead us to live in some ways and not others. Guide us to relate in some ways and not others. Move us to exist in some ways and not others. That's where the contradictory commandments and the antagonistic goals became a problem for Jesus and the people of power he continually struggled with. The outcomes and the worlds and the relationships that resulted from their conflicting allegiances were irresolvable. For Jesus, no Celebrate Diversity banner was going to reconcile the tension between those who wanted to rule over others and those who were ruled over. Those who wanted to accumulate wealth for themselves and those who were left without even the basic means of survival. Those who were willing to let others suffer for their own gain and those who suffered. There was no you have your ways of exploitation and oppression, I have my neighborly love, agree to disagree. No. To love God and neighbor was threatening to the systems and structures in which Caesar, Herod, and the religious elites had built their empires upon. Okay, but what does this have to do with the system and relationships of capitalism? Before we even name the greatest commandment, the ultimate concern of capitalism, there's something unique and peculiar about this commandment that we need to keep in mind. Under capitalism, none of us could ever escape the reach of its greatest commandment. The consequences of the first and greatest commandment of capitalism influence and impact us all, whether we are workers or bosses, debtors or lenders, landlords or renters, investors or those who lose out from disinvestment. The primary goal of capitalism is not just something that some people get to internalize and others don't. We are all powerfully affected by its primary goal for reasons we'll talk about in a bit. But I just wanted to get it out there that there is no escaping the consequences that result from the system's number one priority. That is, as long as the system remains in place. And the primary goal, the ultimate objective of capitalism, as Marx puts it in Volume 1 of Capital, is, quote, the unceasing movement of profit-making, end quote. It is not the production of useful or even essential things, Marx observes. Capitalism is not first and foremost bound to ending things like poverty, homelessness, or racial and gender inequality. Nor is it even the profit of any one single transaction. 
rather, quote, this boundless drive for enrichment, this passionate chase after value, is common to the capitalist and the miser. But while the miser is merely a capitalist gone mad, the capitalist is a rational miser. The ceaseless augmentation of value, which the miser seeks to attain by saving his money from circulation, is achieved by the more acute capitalist by means of throwing his money again and again into circulation. End quote. Ceaseless, never-ending compound growth is the first and greatest commandment of capitalism. Because, as Marx describes here, money that the miser hides away can't increase or expand if it's stashed in a mattress or buried in the ground. For a person to play the role of a capitalist, for a person's money to not simply be money but to be capital, the capitalist must continually put their wealth into a circulatory process that expands the value of their original investment. Unlike the worker, the capitalist starts with one value at the beginning of the day, the week, the quarter, and for some the nanosecond, and exchanges it to receive a greater value later on. Whereas workers exchange their labor for wage values less than the value they actually produce, or whereas the working class exchanges its monies for commodities like food, water, clothes, and shelter. The employer capitalist exchanges their money for people's labor, and the landlord capitalist buys up land and housing, and the lending capitalist gives out loans, and the venture capitalist buys up cheap commodities, so that the value of their original investment can return to them as a greater value, so that they can get more money back than what they actually put in. And the capitalist can't just expand their capital or grow their wealth once. They are systemically compelled to pursue this unceasing movement of profit-making relentlessly. In her classic, The Origin of Capitalism, Ellen Mikesons Wood says that capital's goal is the production and self-expansion of capital. And in his, in his book, Capital City, Samuel Stein gives the system's first and greatest commandment a religious tone. He says, quote, Growth is not just good. Growth is God. End quote. Yet, because of what Marx refers to as the coercive law of competition, which is basically just the fact that capitalist markets force us to fiercely compete, even the employer, the banker, the investor, and the landlord who might morally disagree with the consequences that result from capitalism's primary goal, cannot escape the systemic compulsion to endlessly accumulate more and more wealth. Even capitalists, as self-determined as they think they are, are structurally subjected to the desires of the god that is growth, whether they would want to be or not. But listen, there are material costs and relational consequences that result from a world that is above all faithful to the pursuit of endless economic growth. As we'll talk about more throughout the series, the production and self-expansion of capitalism means working employees harder and faster and longer, paying them as little as a boss possibly can, or laying them off when it's less profitable to employ the current number of workers. Expansion means increasing dependence upon landlords, increasing dependence upon debt, and then raising both rents and interest rates. Expansion often means displacing people from their land, 
disrupting the well-being of communities, devouring familial relationships, and creating conditions where people are forced to migrate across the world so that they can find someone to exploit their labor for a wage. Expansion can even lead one country to invade another with the hopes of extracting their resources and creating an ever more vulnerable source of labor to exploit. Because at the end of the day, capitalists and even countries must compete for economic growth. For the last four to 500 years, capitalism's boundless drive for enrichment, its ultimate allegiance to the unceasing movement of profit-making, has profoundly shaped the world we now live in. And in the following episodes, we're going to talk about what that has meant for working peoples and for surplus populations who are denied wages, for debtors and renters, for disproportionately exploited countries, and for the planet. Jesus found a contradiction between the first and greatest commandments to which he subscribed on one hand and the structures that produced immense inequality, hierarchy, and violence on the other. And he came to see that a world shaped by exploitation, domination, and oppression could not be reconciled with a world shaped by love of neighbor. And so, as a Christian socialist, I want to realize a world where our places of work, our homes, and our communities are genuinely democratic. I want generations after us to be able to enjoy and care for a beautiful and thriving planet. But capitalism's god of growth is standing in our way. I hope you'll join me this series as we take a look at how it directly affects our everyday lives and why we cannot wait another day to start organizing and struggling as a class for a world without capitalism's hierarchies and inequalities, in a world that puts people and the planet before profits. Thanks for listening, and a special thank you to the Patreon supporters of Faith and Capital. This work would not be possible without your financial support. Thank you for believing in this work and for believing that an alternative world is possible. If you found today's episode meaningful, you can support Faith and Capital by sending an episode to a friend, posting it on your social media, leaving a review or rating on iTunes, or contributing a few bucks a month at patreon.com slash faithandcapital. We'll talk soon.